Welcome to Rugger Matrix International. Our special guest this week, an old sea dog, Sevens guru from England, Ollie Phillips. Rugger Matrix is proudly brought to you by Strike, Australia's leading provider of Bluetooth car kits, reversing cameras and GPS tracking systems. So get legal just like the crack driving team at Rugger Matrix and grab a Strike Cradle for $149. Without a hands-free solution, you're risking a $433 fine and four points. Go to strike.com.au to get 10% off. We love our coffee too and love mybean.com.au. Coffee delivered straight from the roaster to guarantee the freshest brew. Mybean.com.au sells at roaster's prices. Yes, hello and welcome to Rugger Matrix International. And today we're coming to you from Rushcutters Bay in Sydney, the wonderful uh, venue in a couple of weeks' time, or very shortly, for the start of the Sydney to Hobart. And Mark Cashman, as you join us in the three shot, is a, a bearded lad from a long way away who's also joined us. G'day, Casho. Yes, uh, Bronk, uh, Ollie Phillips, uh, the 2009 IRB World Sevens Player of the Year, formerly of Stade de France, uh, Stade Francais, sorry, and also uh, Gloucester here. Uh, with Team Great Britain in the uh, Clipper Round the World race. So welcome, Ollie. Oh, nice to be here, guys. Well, what we've got to start off, why are you doing this, Ollie? <laughs> what, what, sitting out here on a pilot boat for you <laughs> Not two, bad, right? but you took the long way, didn't well, you? It wasn't beard, first class thought, British Airways. <laughs> yeah, I thought, yeah, well, I thought they can't do things easily. Uh, well, I mean, essentially, what I, I, it all came about pretty quickly, actually. I thought, I, I injured myself just before the tooth before the rugby world cup in moscow that just just happened in june uh, i severed the nerve in my calf and they said i need a pretty extended period out five six months to really let that nerve recover and hopefully make, give myself the best chance of a comeback uh, and instead of sort of just hanging around and sitting back in london i i thought well you know this opportunity came about to sail around the world and and so far, it's been unbelievable. It's been an you know, absolute belter, and it's it's quite surreal to think I've hopped on a boat and instead of, as you say, just getting a nice little first-class flight from from London, take 24 hours and come sit on a bench. You boys, I've done it the hard way and gone three months on a boat, but uh, but it's, it's still worthwhile. So there you go. Ollie, it hasn't been plain sailing all, all the way. <laughs> a few dramas along the way in some of the leagues. Yeah, um, there was some. We had a big one in the Southern Ocean. We had uh, some really, really heavy weather came in, sort of three, four days where it really, really kicked off. Um, and we had a knockdown, actually. We had uh, was uh, a guy called uh, Jim Hendry on our boat. It's a 68-year-old guy. He was sitting on the deck. Massive wave came over the top, blindsided him, knocked him clean, clean out, and he was just floating on, on the deck for a, sort of about a minute just in this pool of water. That was fairly hairy. But, yeah, I mean, there's the, you know, that... That out there, that ocean is a big scary beast when it wants to be. If you view Anoya, she uh, she gets fairly razzed up and uh, she can uh, she can throw a few waves and head of a bit of wind at you. Talk about taking yourself out of your comfort zone. I mean, did you feel, I guess, all at sea? <laughs> yeah, mate, I've never sailed in my life, ever. So when I, and it came about so quickly. I did the three weeks training and then I had a week and a half to pack up my house say goodbye to my family and uh, just you know give the girlfriend a kiss goodbye before I left and away we went and it, it is, it, is uh, it was such a baptism of fire going out on that ocean and and seeing what it's all about I think the biggest thing mate, is living with 20 people you've never met before in your life in a 70 foot confined space and, you know not in pretty 
yeah, pretty grim conditions, let's be honest. It's not, it's, this is not a life of luxury, I can tell you that, but it is sort of really rewarding and when you get into the ports, it's, it's a hell of an experience. Tell us about where the race goes from here. You, uh, you do the Sydney to Hobart and then it's yeah. up to Brisbane and up through Asia, I believe. Yeah, yeah, we wimp out and we don't do the, uh, the, Cape, the Cape Horn. We don't do that one, we go through the Panama Canal. So we, go, we do the Hobart, which obviously that can get pretty hairy. You know, obviously everyone reverts back and remembers 98 and that, that sort of disaster. But the, you know, the weather can get fairly feisty down there through the Bass Strait. That's that. We came up that way actually through Albany and we got a little bit of a taster of it. So that's going to be interesting. Um, so we go Hobart, then Brisbane, Singapore, China, across the Pacific to San Francisco, through Panama, New York, and then home, home we come. So uh, yeah, I mean, there's still a bit of a way to go. There's probably another five, five six months to go, but uh, it, it sort of feels like we're halfway. And you've come to Sydney now, you're halfway if, uh, around the world. And uh, you know, we're, it feels like we're on the homeward walk leg now even though we've got a little bit more so time to go. in the more professional members of the sailing group and team great britain how were they initially to you were just warm and friendly and now given the thousands thousands of kilometers you've done your nautical miles have they uh, become a bit more shorter and sharper when they command you to, to <laughs> oh, do something on the no, boat? I get all the crap jobs. I get put out on the bow, out on the bowsprit. Like, so there needs to be a sail change. I have to walk out on the bowsprit as the waves are coming over and try and peel off we'll the sail if I'm getting hit. Send, yeah. send the rugby bloke. Yeah, that's anything that needs like manual labour, I'm sent to do. So, But I'm also one of the helmers, so I, st I steer the boat, which is actually, you know, I was really, really pleased with that. I'd leg one that they sort of slowly introduced me and then I'd, did a half decent job, you know, and then they said, right, okay, you can keep hold of it. But uh, yeah, it took a little bit of time to integrate, but now, you know, we get on pretty well and it's, it's cool, yeah, it's good fun. We mentioned Stade Francais a bit yeah. earlier. Your, your, your flatmate in Paris was yeah. uh, was James Haskell, Hask, who's a, a friend of uh, Rugger Matrix. Right, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, tell us tell us some of the fun, some of the banter that you had with uh, with the Hask and uh, <laughs> Giro and I were only saying a bit earlier that uh, geez, it, it must have been hard if you had a mirror on the uh, on, on, on the way out the door <laughs> oh, because God, it uh, you know he'd have to check himself out mate, on the, the way show, through. The narcissist, mate. There was a, he had a policy. And when we walked through the door of the house, he'd whip his top off. So we don't, no matter what time of year it was, it was snowing outside, we'd come back from training, and his t-shirt would just come off every time, like, Rask, what are you doing? Like, well, but uh, yeah, there, had, there were some absolutely belting stories. Um, some of my favourites, some of my favourites. Well, I mean, Hask has got quite a short fuse at times, so he can get wound up really, really easily. So there was a time when we were, uh, we were on the, the, the tube, you know, the, the metro or whatever they, they call it in France. We're sitting there, and there's this drunk guy uh, who's a, a tramp was, was sitting on the train, and he was he was pissed, and he was he was trying to be a bit sort of lecherous on he this woman. Like so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was pretty much me, but with a bottle of whiskey, uh, and he had a bag of clothes next to him, so he was a bit better than me. And um, and uh, anyway, he, he started like being a bit annoying and lecherous to this woman. So Haskell's over, obviously in his finest French which is basically English with a French accent. And so it's like, mate, stop that. Like, you know, leave it out. She's had enough kind of thing. Bloke carries on, carries on. He's like, I'm telling you, like, stop it now. So the bloke, yeah, like swears at him in a bit of French, leaves it. Next stop, he carries on, carries on. So as we're pulling up, as the train's about to stop, Hass goes, right, that's it, bang, stands up, screams at this poor bloke who's the, not not the tramp, this other guy. Open the door, open the door. This like guy's standing there. Obviously, this six foot three Aryan who's just sort of stood up like about to, like in a massive rage cage. He grabs the tramp by the back of his neck, 
chucks him out the train and boots his bag out as well. All his clothes fly everywhere. And Hash just stands at the door like, right, like, and everybody on the train starts applauding him and loving it. And he's some heroine, so. The superhero. Yeah, the superhero Hash, yeah. He loves that one, he recounts that one all the time. <laughs> what I love about him is he's just uh, so passionate for the England jersey too. Yeah, um, very understated as well yeah, at the yeah, same time. Yeah, understated, man. But, uh, you know, England, uh, I've got to say, last couple of Autumn series have performed well and there's some development in the 15-man uh, game that uh, I thought were impressive. Always seem to do well against the All Blacks at Twickenham. Yeah, they, I mean, they were unlucky not to win this last mm. test actually, but... Yeah, they're not quite there yet. I think you know we're, what what's great and what I think Stuart Lancaster's done unbelievably well is, and similar to you, Mackenzie now, who's who's started to change. We were commenting earlier that you know, has started to change this Australian side. He's instilled, instilled some really good values and a bit of pride in playing for the jersey. You know, it, it's that England talk about now that the, you're lent the jersey and it's not yours. You're just borrowing it, kind of thing. And, and that I think has resonated with a lot of the players. Where where England are brilliant is they're tough to beat. You know, I think if you can be tough to beat initially, that's a great starting platform because then you work hard for each other and you eke out wins. That game against Australia, the first test, pretty ugly. Pretty, no, it wasn't some great rugby, but they just dogged it out and won the game. Against New Zealand, you need a little bit more. They need a bit more firepower. Uh, I'd like, I think, you know, in terms of places like that, I'd love to see a bit of a chat. I mean, I think Owen Farrell's great. I just think he's a bit samey, like he's safe, steady Eddie. You need something, a spark at 10. And I'd love to see a guy like Freddie Burns or something like that come and really take that, take hold of it. The last time Freddie Burns played was against the All Blacks and we beat them at, at, and, and he sort of sparked a, an unbelievable you know, five try route that we ended up having at Twickenham. We were really fortunate last year. We, we, we get the feeling here in the Southern Hemisphere that a lot of the times, the problem with the England side is is the selection process. Perhaps they're not uh, they're not selecting the right people to to do a job at that particular level. A lot of, a lot of people are suited to Test rugby, where they may not be suited to some of the other levels. Yeah, that that's, in the past that's definitely true. I think uh, Stuart Lancaster now is, is getting it is getting it right. I, I think he knows his his staple of go-to players. You know, his reliable guys that are up for Test rugby. They're young. They're going to be around for a long time. Um, they, you know, they've got good work ethic, good values, which is which is what he's all about. He's all about having good you know, moral values and principles and everything else of work hard and you know, play for the shirt. Because before we were, you know, we were getting certain things within an England England team where, you know, uh, you know Danny Kale would get done for drink driving or get caught yeah. taking a pee on a policeman's leg and. You know, like all those sort of things, or, or we toss some doors around a bar, or you know, like, you know, it was getting a little bit, a little bit loose and a little yeah. bit too crazy. And you, you know, yeah, unfortunately, at international level, you've got to rein that in because you are an example for everybody. And if you slip up or you make one mistake, it lives and it haunts you for a while, and then it's it's sort of a never-ending cycle. And and I think Lanny's done really, really well to to really rein that in and get it back. And he's got. He's got a good base of players, and then he starts to introduce now maybe some magic, if you know what I mean, that could could hopefully win that and bring that World Cup back. And Ollie, they're not on their own. I mean, I think that's a difficult thing for elite athletes. You get so tightly wound up with your preparation, it's very difficult to get a release. Now, people out there who work Monday to Friday, every Friday night, they're, yeah. they're out on the cans you or whatever crazy, else. You yeah. go crazy. Uh, obviously, an elite athlete needs to look after their body, but. 
isn't it, it, it is hard to get that release, isn't it? And sometimes you have to bring it in house and have a few beers or whatever else. But um, yeah, it is a tough thing, isn't it? Because the guys, otherwise you get too wound up. Yeah. It's unfortunately now, you know, professional sport and, and rugby and international rugby is becoming more and more scrutinised and that happens as popularity increases and people want to get involved in it. I think it would be a real shame if that element gets lost because that is you know, one of the truly great things about rugby in general is that is this sort of, you know, clubhouse atmosphere after a game, you know, you all shake hands, roll your sleeves up, all go, you know, get on the jars and... Well, France know. is a great example. Uh, yeah. I've been to a couple of... Uh, French, not the Carnegie Cup games, but the French uh, uh, post-game functions. They're fantastic. Oh, they love it's it. Old yeah. school. They love it. They, the, <laughs> the wine gets cracked open. You sit there for <laughs> hours and hours and hours. Yeah. You come back with the, the old red bulbous nose, <laughs> and the stained teeth, and all. So the it's rest that of sort it. of stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. but I, so it's, it's a happy medium, you know. Like where French teams slip up is that they're probably too far. You know, they're, they're too. There's, you know, the Latin artists. So that's why they're capable of one minute. They're unbelievable, and they, you know, they beat the All Blacks by 20 points. And the next minute, they get smashed by 50. And you're like, well, where's that same team? Everyone says it. Which French team are turning up this week? Um, so yeah, you need, you, you need the blowout. It's how you get it. Simon Shaw actually said, just before he left international rugby, that after that World Cup, if things, you know, like the night, the dwarf throwing, and everything else, if stuff like that just keeps coming out and they get absolutely slaughtered and their names dragged through the mud then you know rugby players or teams are going to become more and more insular less accessible and all those sorts of great stories that you hear about you know after what's his face I can't remember his name but you know who the Australian that flew after they won the World David Cup Boone. David, David Boone David coming back from um, yeah, what was the ashes or the what? ashes or whatever yeah. you know smashing 36 cans on the on the like all those yeah. great stories I think it was that, over 50 actually 50, <laughs> okay <laughs> sorry yeah. do a disservice about 50 come on so you know all those sorts of great things that, that happen in yeah. sport you know they're they're going to become fewer and fewer and fewer and I think it, it, we need to make sure that doesn't happen just on that alcohol thing in France it's part of the culture that that uh, wine isn't seen as like a binge effort, isn't it? It's, you know, it's part of your, your, yeah, your, your yeah. it's oh, part yeah, it's of part the culture. Of so they don't. You and Mackenzie used to say when he was at Stade Francais that he just never really uh, incurred that sort of you know, the alcohol issue in, in the sport. Thing. No, no. I mean, in in Britain, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in Britain, there's a, I guess a bit more of a binge culture. Yeah, you know, exactly. When we drink, the same. It's, it's exactly like the we're same. just crazy. Yeah. It's like let loose, and we've got to smash twenty pints down, dribble and. And you know, end up as a as a heap in our own sick or something at the end of the night. Whereas in France, it's, it's you know they drink to enjoy it, so they'd have it's a much more drawn out process. Six hours that you know they might consume four bottles of wine, you know, but in six hours, you know that's how they how they sort of go. And not very often do you see them absolutely bladdered. But uh, yeah, it was a, a I guess a bit more sophisticated way of drinking. That's what they like to think anyway. I can remember Ewan saying, uh, Giro, about uh, about trips back from the south of France up to Paris and uh, the players would, and enjoy a couple of bottles of wine on the train on the way back and a cheese pie. A baker, yeah. He was, and he was bloody mind-sweeping. He'd go around everyone's table make sure he finished all the bottles of wine up. <laughs> Nick all the cheese as well. Yeah, Ewan loved the little uh, the trains back up. That's One thing Ewan loves is his food. Yes. Ollie, Sevens is where you've, where you've made your mark on the international scene. Uh, Whereabouts is it now? What we're we're almost 18 months away from the Rio Olympics, and uh, that's obviously a goal of yours, is it? Yeah, huge. I'd love to. You know, if my calf, which you know, touch wood, it you know recovers and everything else after this this race, that's the aim to try and you know go back with England. I've remained in contact with England, and you know 
the aim is to sort of link back up and have a crack at going back for, for the Olympics. I mean, this sevens dynamic at the moment is in a, a really great sort of a, a forward momentum. It's got, it's got loads of people talking about it, backing it. That Olympic carrot has galvanised the sport. You know, before certain countries didn't take it, Australia didn't take it very seriously, and others did. New Zealand, New Zealand did, England did. Now everybody is. Everybody's like, okay, it's a feeder. We use it as a feeder for our Super 15 or and international teams. And you know, we've got an Olympic gold medal carrot. You know, the greatest sporting spectacle probably now in the world, and uh, which our sport, rugby, is going to be showcased. And you know, they want they want a piece of that action. In the US too. Yeah, yeah, yeah This yeah, has yeah. unlocked a lot of funding, and uh, the government is very interested in making sure that the United States is well represented in the yeah, Olympics. Yeah, well. well, it's the first ever million million dollar game. Yeah, I shall certainly be making sure I get in, uh, get my name in that one. I tell you, but yeah, well, so, Vegas is a good uh, sevens, isn't it? Yeah, that's where it is. Yeah, yeah. The million dollar game is yeah. going to be in Vegas. What a great way! Win a million bucks and then go lose it three hours later. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you have fun losing. Yeah, exactly. Have a great time. <laughs> Although I'll be crying on here next time. Next time I, come I, I hear James Haskell has put his hand up. Well, he unfortunately there's many things, but he's not a particularly great sevens player. He's got hands like feet. He's got hands like feet. He's a hero and he's a fantastic rugby player and he's one of our best mates, but he can't catch a cold. Well, sevens used to be like just get your fast guys and throw the ball around, but you can see the change in coaching and the specific nature where it's caught up with a 15-man game. Yeah, I'm. See, I've. I've always sort of maintained that with all these people that are, you need specialist sevens players, and I was like, it's nonsense. Like, you need good rugby players. Like, yeah, good rugby players. They make good decisions. Selection again as well. Yeah, exactly. It? That's that's what it's all about. And it's it's talent. It's just finding great players. You know, you put Will Guinea or or Quay Cooper on on or Adam Ashley Cooper, somebody like that, on a sevens field. You know, they'll be phenomenal. The, the difference is, you have to make decisions in fifteens. You've got not a lot of time because people's defences are good and they rush you and. In sevens, it's the opposite. You've got loads of time and loads of space, so you have to understand how to maintain the space. And that, that's the difference. And you know, good rugby players understand that, recognise that, and that's why. If you look at England, you look at New Zealand, and you start to look at Australia now. The unbelievable sevens players went on and have made fantastic uh, international players. Ben Foden for us, Danny Kerr, Tom Croft, all these guys played in the sevens were outstanding in England's sevens players, and now they're outstanding in England's national. Ollie, take us, take us through the huddle, uh, yeah. the, the Olympic final, it's England versus yeah. USA. Uh, yeah. You know, you're there just, just before the final. Australia not there, is that what's No, no, they, no, they've, they've not they, made they, it. They got knocked out by England <laughs> in the semi-final. Uh, you know, you, you, you take your positions on the field, you look over there, Carlin Isles. Do you say, hang on Barry over there, this is your wing. Yeah. No, I just say I'll stand right outside him. <laughs> so he's got to go inside. And if I can just get my one fingernail on his shirt, he only weighs about 65 kilos, so he can throw him around <laughs> yeah, like a ragdoll. Yeah. He's yeah. quite a talent, though, isn't he? And, yeah, uh, huge know, he's, talent. He's, his highlight reel is just absolutely sensational. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's raw, raw speed that he's yeah. got. I mean, if you've got that much speed and then you can nurture and harness it and actually teach him the rules of rugby, he's going to be a, 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 a serious threat. You know, like. Uh, it was interesting. His first year in the, on the series, he was just off the bench all the time. You know, when you know everyone was knackered, bring on this dude who can run 10.2, and you're like, oh my god, like this is my worst nightmare. It just happened to me. So, yeah, there's. I think there's going to be more and more stories like that, particularly in the states. You know, these guys who, if you look at NFL guys or NBA guys who you know, haven't quite made cut the mustard, unbelievable athletes, 
and all of a sudden they want to go to Olympic Games, they want to win Olympic gold, I can do that playing this, this game called rugby. Oh, yeah. I'll give that a go. Suddenly you've got six foot eight lads that can run at 10-5, you know, massive. That's probably where I'll be like, look lads, I'm just hanging my boots up, I'll see you later, because I'm going to get run over by these massive dudes. But uh, no, I mean, it's, it's, that's what's the Olympics has done for it. You know, like the, you wouldn't have had America producing unbelievable players and their 15s program because it's just so hard for them to compete whereas sevens they can compete yeah it's great for the game that you unlock america what about heineken cup there's been so much news about it uh, changing with the, the england clubs are looking to get out and yeah. that drags a french club out but uh you see so many people around europe saying look how good this product is yeah. we have seen some unbelievable games in the pool game so recently Awesome effort by Northampton recently. Cash, I usually watched a few as well. Uh, Toulon versus Exeter, great, yeah. great, great, great You're game. A big fan of Exeter, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But uh, these games uh, are showing that uh, that the the European Cup or the uh, Heineken Cup is just a wonderful competition. Um, are you are you sad for the fact that, uh, that maybe it all could come to an end soon? Yeah, I mean it's it's tragic, and I think it's you know something's going to happen. That's that's going to be to the detriment of that tournament. Um, Sky made that tournament. Sky and Heineken together grew that tournament and made it the spectacle that it is now. Sky Sports, uh, BT have come in and they've you know they've rattled people's cages and and they put money up and, it, and it's causing some some real issues for the you know for the game. It is a shame because I think what's going to happen is, I mean England are gone. You know, England are. The English teams are gone. They've signed the contract with BT. As far as I know, I, I don't know. If there's any way for them actually to come back from it. You know what they're trying to do now is to convince the French to come with them, and then basically the other, the, the Irish and Welsh have, have got to go, if you, if you like. Um, but it would be an absolute, you know, crying shame because Heineken Cup weekends are just the. the I mean, I when when I'm not playing. In between it, I'm just there. I, can't, I cannot get enough of it because, as you say, the games are just unbelievable. The, the crowds, the atmosphere, the build-up, you know, the tension, everything that rides on it, all the all the different permutations of you know who wins and what that means. It just makes for a cracking. And I think the standard is so close to international rugby; it's phenomenal. Um, and if that gets lost, yeah, well, you know, what a tragic shame for, for rugby in general but I think at the same time it's it's another example of where this sport's going and becoming so popular BT are chucking mega money and you know, we were entering like multi-millions of pounds now and uh, you know and they want to make a, just a bigger spectacle of it and I think it'll just be a different dynamic that takes time to grow again if if and maybe when that does happen. Economic benefit is substantial yeah. to the to the regions, you know, whether it's in the south of France or, or Italy. Exactly. People travel to watch their team, to support their team, which is which is fantastic. And one of the things about a rugby world cup in England in twenty fifteen is is that sort of economic benefit. What's what's your take on where they're at? Are they uh, are they got it under control? Yeah, yeah, they seem pretty organised, yeah. I mean it's gonna they've named all the stadiums now where it's all gonna be. It's great that they're sort of distributing it across the country as well. So my hometown, Seaside Boy from Brighton. We're getting a game. We're getting like Fiji, Samoa, or something like that, going on you know, on the seaside town in a <clears throat> in a football stadium, Brighton Hove Albion, 30,000 seat stadium. It'd be incredible. Everybody will turn up. Everybody go to see a World Cup. And I think with the success of the London 2012 Olympics, every you know Britain at the moment is 
hungry and desperate for big sporting spectacles and, and the World Cup is going to be one of them. Uh, and, I, and, I th and I really hope it takes off and goes incredibly well. It's, there's a lot of money being put behind it and there are a few getting heavily involved. And Yeah, it should be a cracker. You know? Let's just make sure we've got the, you know, the, the, the cup at the end of it, or Webb Ellis Cup, just sitting, sitting in Twickenham. <laughs> it's been there uh, once before. Don't so forget, we, we are recording this when the ashes are being decided <laughs> in Perth. <laughs> Uh, perfect timing. You actually, if you get out about here, King's Cross, etc., you're going to cop it all. Yeah, I know. I've already copped a bit of it already. Don't worry. Every time I say I'm British, they go. Oh, this has been building for a while. I mean, I try and come back and go. Yeah, what about the Lions? Like that was ages uh, ago. They, they forget about that one. They that's not even, England. That's they Wales. don't even care. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's Wales. <laughs> Although it is the uh, England and, and Wales uh, cricket board, so um, I guess you. Yeah, I mean, we're getting absolutely panned, aren't yeah. we? To be fair. It's yeah. a good opportunity for a bit of pommy bashing as well, which always goes down well. It's a great rivalry. It's just it's a good sport. But we've been copying it for a while, and fair enough. What about the state of the game at the moment? Obviously, it ebbs and flows with the adjudication. Um, and I know that uh, yeah, the scrum engagement was a big issue. The hit was a real blight on the game. It seems to be um, dissipated somewhat. What are your thoughts about how the game's being played at the moment? Because I think the miss... Uh, interpretation of English rugby is that you just want to play eight, uh, you know, ten-man rugby. But yeah. I mean, you love scoring tries. Uh, I mean, can you put that to bed to start with? Well, yeah. I mean, sometimes reason, you have to with the, the reason. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's yeah. the great. What I love about the Super 15 and a lot of the Southern Hemisphere teams is that they, you know, they, there's two reasons why they play unbelievable rugby. Well, three reasons. One, you know, a lot of them grow up on it from early ages, and you have um, glorious weather or the weather is a lot more consistent so that you can just go out down the park, chuck a ball around and have a game of touch or something like that. Whereas in the UK, you know, let's be fair, it rains a lot. So it's seven, six, seven months of, of the year it's chucking it down with rain. And then, and then you add to the fact that, I think what, one thing that's maybe good and bad about Super 15 is there's no relegation. So you can, you can afford- I agree with that. You can yeah. afford to just chuck it around. If you, lose by 60 points, it actually makes no difference apart from personal pride. If you, if you, like, there's no actual economic, oh my God, we're not in the Super 15 anymore, we're gone. Whereas you know, in, in the UK, if you end up 12th, you're not in the Premiership anymore and that, is, that costs you millions of quid and that's and that is an expensive. So they have to you know, win at all costs. And I think actually when you then translate that to World Cups, that's been an, a downfall of New Zealand. I know they won the last one, but when the going gets really, really tough and you've just got to dog out and win, they sometimes have fallen short in, in those instances. And so there's pluses and minuses to everything. Um, and I think the way that the game is at, at the moment in the UK, with the likes of the Heineken Cup, we're starting to get a bit more expansive and starting to play. You know, we're recognising we need to play a bit more rugby in order to to win World Cups and, and be competitive against. Around the finals time, too, so the weather opens up, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah Some always, of the glorious yeah, the semis and finals. Amazing, yeah. yeah. But I mean, Ewan will be turning his grave when they made those, because he loves the hit and everything at scrum time. He's in you know, a big, gnarly front row, he'd be loving it. But the, you've got to look at safety as well in the game. And I think it was getting to the point where these the players now, and my 12 years of professional rugby, you know, Props, when I first came in, probably averaging 17 stone. Now, 18, 19, there's not many underneath. You know, the weight and the power and the strength of these guys, when you're engaging, and because it's such a technical area, if you get it wrong, it's, you know, it could be good night Vienna, and, and you, 
and you can't have that. It, I just think you've got to eliminate that risk, and it actually then brings, if you just have the sort of set the scrum and let's go, it's almost like a tug of war, like a, a test of strength, a test of technique, brings a lot, I guess it brings the purest side of scrummaging into it and alleviates that risk of you know, the full wham, throw my shoulders in well, as That's what it used to be. I yeah. mean, the All Blacks really introduced the hit yeah. and it came in over time. And Ewan can remember just coming together and, and scrummaging, doing some pure scrummaging. But uh, this is almost like they say in a business, a barrier to entry for kids who want to play rugby. If, it become, if you become so big and strong, then you've got to have a period of time to build yourself up, yeah, yeah. to be ready to play. Yeah, that, that, yeah. that could be harmful for the game, developmentally. Of course, yeah. I mean, that is, that's definitely true. But I think also that's where, you know, we mentioned the sevens dynamic. I think that's actually helping maybe bridge that gap a tiny bit because it's offering opportunity. The beauty about the sevens environment is you don't necessarily have to be position specific. You know, you have to be just a, a really good athlete. If you can run, catch and pass, it's a hell of a start point, and then you can, you know, build around there. The the 15s game is an unbelievable spectacle, and I think, as tournaments like Super 15, Heineken Cup, Aviva Premiership, World Cups, Tri Nation, sorry, the Championship, and the Six Nations get bigger and bigger and bigger. More and more people want to get involved. More and more kids want to aspire to be the X, Ys, and Zs of this, you know, the the, the Owen Farrells, the Alex Corbuceros of, of this world. Um, it's just, as you say, making sure that we don't lose sight of what's happening. I think now, it's, as the hit's gone, you might find that props become more mobile. You, know, that you don't necessarily need these huge dudes to fly in and, and get momentum at the scrum time because the hit's gone. You need them to be able to technically be very, very good, be able to scrummage and be strong. But once the scrum's finished, we need you around the park, we need you playing, we need you... We need you so that it might be beneficial, but as always, with all elements of change, there's some people that love it, some people that loathe it. It takes time to set in, and and, and I, but I think over time it'll 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 all settle down and be all right. We mentioned Ewan before and yeah. that uh, the, the the close binding and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I remember some months ago, some years ago, Bronky was he was bluing about uh, the the guy that played him in the movie Invictus. He said he he looked nothing <laughs> like him. He was far too handsome and his scrummaging technique was, was yeah, rubbish, he yeah, said. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, it was a CGI it. scrum, wasn't it? I remember when I turned up with Stad, well, our first week, we had like, ruck, clearing the ruck and technique and everything. And Ewan showed me like, what, you know, what he wanted to do, or this new technique he wanted to try. And he got my head and wrenched it round and he snapped my neck in half. <laughs> I was like, Ewan, mate, you're still, don't forget, you're still like 18 stone, buddy, 19 stone. He just, he's like, he still wants to come back and play again, but there you go. How was his French? Because he, he used to try and do the post-match interviews in French and uh, I don't know, oh, a few French people I knew so I loved it was him. rubbish. He was brilliant. <laughs> but I didn't know at the time, was I couldn't speak any French. So I was like, oh, Ewan's unbelievable. But then when I'd finished by the end of my two years, he was like, bonjour. Comment ça va, tout le monde? <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> French with an Aussie accent is not an attractive language, I tell you. But he's a great, he was a great guy. And, um, Are you happy for him where he's there? Because, um, yeah, hugely, because yeah. I think he, he signed me. The story about him signing me is a belter. He rang me. I was at Newcastle Falcons in November, December time. And I was, at a, I was, I was doing a charity game, like going down and doing like a, uh, prize giving at the end of charity game. My phone rings as I'm coming off, and he's like, "Hello, it's you and McKenzie here." <laughs> and I was like, and some of my mates knew that it was I was thinking about leaving, wanted to go overseas and stuff. 
And I was like, yeah, 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 of course it is, mate. And he's like, yeah, it's Ewan from Stade Francais. I've, I've seen you play and, I, and I'm really interested in you coming over. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course you are. Yeah, I'd love to, of course, yeah. Didn't believe it for one second, thought it was a wind-up. <laughs> Put the phone down uh, yeah, and he was like, I'll send a contract over, we'll have a chat in the new year. I was like, yeah, yeah, you do that, pal, you do that. I remember I went to Wellington for the Sevens in February and we won and I was captain at the time, it was the first time England ever won. And he rang me again and said, I've just seen your, seen your win, congratulations, amazing. I've set up with Max Guazzini, the president, I want to see you in March. And that was when the penny dropped and I was like, gosh, this is actually Ewan McKenzie, this is actually Stanford State. <laughs> but until that point, I didn't think it was him, I thought it was a complete wind-up. And I thought, he signed me. And I thought he was very, uh, it was unjust and it wasn't how he got you know, sacked from, yeah. from Stad. You know, we had, hadn't really had that bad a start to the season. We were seven games in. Um, and the French, that's what I'm saying, they're so temperamental that they just, they were looking for a scapegoat and they just went to Ewan. And what I love about it is he left, went to Queensland Reds. Transformed? Transformed them. Yeah. They won the Super 15, unbelievable. He's now got the Wallaby job. He's transformed the Wallabies, you know, and that's a and that's a fantastic effort from him because you know he had a bit of a nightmare before Stad at the Waratahs. Or so. Was it the Waratahs or something? Yeah, well, I was I was his media manager at the Waratahs, and they punted him uh, at the start of the 2008 season. We got to the final, and he really made Curtly Bill as well. You know, invested in him as at 10, made made sure that he was would like if Curly Bill had played unbroken at 10, who knows where he could be since 08. And we almost won the final against the Crusaders. So, yeah, he was, um, you know, he, he copped a rough deal, and then he went to start after that, yeah, and yeah. then copped a rough deal yeah. there. But he wasn't the only one. They punted a few coaches after that. Yeah, so. well, Max, Max loved punting. I think it was just, well, we had four coaches in one season. It was unbelievable. It was, <laughs> Haskell, our first year there, we were like, what's going on? And then we had Czechs come in, who's like the uh, ruled with the iron fist. It was like one extreme to the other. It was unbelievable. But I'm so pleased for you and now where he is, and and the success of the Wallabies. You know what they're on now. The upward upward trend had a you know, poor game against England. You know what put that behind? Fantastic win against Wales at the Millennium to 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 cap that off. And Australia now, has, uh, I think he's set the standards. He's set the the benchmark of 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 like you know the standards that he wants to maintain as to be a Wallaby. Uh, and he's put some pride back in that jersey, and I think that they're aside now on the up. And the, when when the Wallabies are good, playing well, united, they're a seriously tough team to, to beat. All right, mate. Well, uh, we've Cash. I know you're going to jump in, but we've just about run out of time, actually. <laughs> Ollie Phillips, uh, thank you very much no for joining worries, us. Boys, yeah, good, good luck with Team here. Great Britain as you Thanks, sail mate. around the world and uh, in the Sydney Hobart. It's a it's a classic uh, blue water event and. Um, uh, enjoy it. Have you been to Hobart before? Never, never. Wonderful right. place. We've got the taste of Taz when we get there, I say. So just, <laughs> just eat a load of scallops all night long and have, have a <laughs> good exactly time. Right. Well, listen, Bronk, uh, while, while he's here, uh, you know, this show's all about plugs and uh, mm -hmm. we might as well mention Henry Lloyd who uh, kit you out, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah, they've uh, they kit me out. Lucky, I turned up on the boat and I didn't have a clue about sailing. I, must, I turned up with like a pair of jeans and a t shirt and luckily Henry Lloyd saved me. And said, you know, and they'd sent a load of sailing gear that actually was appropriate for the journey. So, I, you live in these; they've got like lined silver inside them, so they uh, so they don't smell. They're unbelievable. So they, yeah, they've really saved saved me and kept me warm. So thank you very much, Henry Lloyd. And your impression of Ewan was very good, but they didn't have enough grunting in it. No, them. you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and heavy breathing. God, There's a lot of heavy breathing at the end of it. Heavy breathing, especially if you put like a bottle of Shiraz and a few bits of camembert in front of him. It's like drooling, drooling grunting. So.
And uh, did he had a do you have away from the game really poor fashion sense? Well, I think it was in the game and away from yeah. the game. <laughs> I don't think it's, it's he was a hero. He was an absolute. He used to come round to Minor Hask House for barbecues, and he'd sit there, not bring any food, but eat all of ours, not bring any wine, and but drink all of ours, and then bugger off over again. And we couldn't say anything because we wanted to get picked the next day. So. <laughs> So there he is, Ollie Phillips, joining us on Rugger Matrix International. We thank him for his time as he prepares for the Sydney to Hobart on Boxing Day. You can see the start of that race on Channel 7. And what a great spectacle that is with all the boats on the harbour. We wish him all the very best on the way to Hobart and, of course, for the rest of his journey around the world. And let's hope he does make Rio for the England Sevens team. All the best to you, Ollie Phillips. Thanks to Mark Cashman for joining us in the park as well. Good to see him back on deck. He'll be back on the show next week when we delve into the Brumbies. Coinciding with the release of Inside Rugby next week, there's a big feature article on the change in leadership with Jake White leaving. It's now Stephen Larkham and Laurie Fisher in charge of the Brumbies. Co-coaches, if you would put it that way. European style of coaching set up with a coaching director in Laurie Fisher and Stephen Larkham, the head coach. We'll go one-on-one -on -one with them next week. A great chat not just about the Brumbies, about the game in general. So please join us next week as we lead into Christmas and catch up with two of the great rugby minds in the game, full stop. So that is it, episode 181. Once again, thanks to Ollie Phillips, to Mark Cashman, and we will see you next week. One more program before Santa arrives and Christmas 2013. <laughs>